Uh, I don't know if you stumbled across the Nobel Prize winner for literature this week. Uh, I accidentally stumbled across it. It wasn't something I was, you know, going looking after. But um, Bob Dylan won it, right? Now, uh, I don't know if that means anything to you. It was kind of funny when he was announced, though. You know, normally you'd expect claps and cheers to something like that, but there was laughter and booze, which is just interesting in itself. But he won the, this award for literature, and clearly he has this good ability to write. Now, I don't know any of his songs. I know that some of you love him. I actually Googled this week Bob Dylan's top songs and knew none of them. But clearly this is a guy that can write pretty well. He, he has the ability to write well, whether it's poetry or songs or whatever he's doing. And, and in his writing actually has the ability to move people which is seen not only in the fact that he won this award, which is obviously a big deal, but in the, the way his biographer responded when he, the biographer was asked whether he should have won. So I caught this on the radio this week. Uh, the biographer, when asked whether Bob Dylan should have won the award, said, yeah, he should have. Of course he should have won the award. Should have won it years ago. And then he said this, and I'm quoting here. He said, Bob Dylan is the greatest human being in America. Right? Clearly a man that's been moved by Dylan but I don't know, listening to that, I just don't think he has the ability, the right to say anything about, you know, the greatest human being in America. But, but he made this call. And, and what's clear from the biographer and from really everything else in that is, is that Bob Dylan has this ability. He's got a good ability to write stories, to write poetry, to write good stuff. And, and the reality is, is good stories, whether through poetry and songs or, you know, in movies, good stories actually move us. Right? And it's clear that this biographer was moved. It's clear that other people have been moved. But we know that's true anyway. Good stories actually do move us. Whether it is in a good song or a good movie or somewhere else, good stories move us. Like you never watch a good movie and come out the other end feeling exactly the same as you started. Right? You never read a good book if you read good books. You never read a good book and get to the end of it and go and just don't feel moved by it. Good stories actually do move us. They change us. Right? We, we finish a good story and we kind of feel differently. We live differently in some way on some level. Now, now this morning as we come here at, at, to church this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to continue in our series in Acts. And what we're going to see that is in, in Acts, Luke tells us this incredible, this unbelievable story. But this story is actually meant to move us. It's meant to change us. Now, if we remember, I know we, we didn't see this last week at the start of our new series, but if we remember, Acts is written by a guy called Luke, right? It's written by a guy called Luke, and it's written so that another guy called Theophilus could have certainty. So Theophilus basically paid Luke to go around speaking to eyewitnesses. This is what happened, right? And so Luke went around speaking to eyewitnesses, and what we have is Acts, and it's written so we can have certainty, certainty about what we believe about Jesus, right? That, that's what we see here. That's why this is written. But what we see, what we're about to see, if we can capture the awe, the beauty of Acts chapter 9, as we see what happened with Saul and the reality that God is at work, it's actually meant to move us. It's meant to change us in some way. And so if you have your Bibles there, have them open in Acts chapter 9, because we meet the first character in verse 1. So ha have a look with me. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. This is what it says. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, so that's to Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So here we meet Saul. Now, uh, I should just say at this point, Saul's other name is Paul. And if I stuff that up in this sermon, be gracious to me because Saul and Paul, I don't know, they just gave them two names back then. 
I, I feel like it's a lesson to all of us that if you're going to give your child two names, at least make them a little bit different, not Saul and Paul. So if I stuff that up, uh, that's what's going to happen. But, but at this stage of the game, we don't actually know that much about Saul. Right? Uh, when we get to him in Acts chapter 9, we don't know a whole lot. But what we do know is that he hates Christians. He hates Christians. He hates Christianity. He hates Christian men. He hates Christian women. And actually, he wants to kill them. So the little bit we do know about Saul, we've seen earlier. So if we remember, if you were here with us last year, or even if you know the story, even if you don't, that's okay. A guy called Stephen gets killed for being a Christian. And they throw stones at him basically to kill him because he's a Christian. Saul's the guy holding their jackets so they can get a better throw at him. Right? That's who Saul is. In chapter 8 verse 1, we see he's kind of smiling when Stephen's being killed. This is the kind of guy he is. He hates Christians. He wants to kill Christians. He wants to raise up leaders to kill Christians. And then here in chapter 9, what we see about Saul is that he's actually getting government kind of authority to put Christians in jail. This is who Saul is. Hates Christians. Hates Christianity. Wants to kill him. Wants to stop this movement. This is the kind of guy that Saul is. This is a big deal. Right? In terms of people you would think would one day become a Christian, he's not on the list. Right? In fact, today's version of him is probably the kind of leader of ISIS. Right? So again, this week we're reminded of ISIS with the teenagers down in Sydney. Right, I don't know about you, but that kind of fills me with fear. Right, that, That's scary. But Saul is kind of the leader of ISIS. He hates Christians. He hates Christianity. He wants to kill people for being Christians. But more than that, he's raising up leaders to kill people for Christianity. Right, This is who Saul is. He hates everything about Christians, hates everything about Christianity. He's killing Christians and he's jailing them. So what does God do? Right? If God is truly at work in individuals, if God is at work in this world, what does God do? Well, let's have a look. Verse 3. As Saul, that is, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell on the ground and heard a, vo- and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do next. Here's Saul, the leader of leaders, the leader of the opposition, someone we would all fear if we were living back in the day. The most strategic, the most energetic, the one who's killing people, jailing people, the one who we would all be afraid of. And yet here in a moment, he's put to the ground. Right? It takes God one verse and yet here in a moment, he's put to the ground. This is good news. Right? I don't know if you could imagine back in the day hearing this, but this is actually good news. This is prayers answered. This is things we'd want to hear. We'd be praying that God would stop this man. And yet here he is on the ground. Right, The leader of leaders on the ground. He looks like nothing. He's a picture of weakness here. But again, we don't just want to know that he's on the ground. We want to know what happens to him. Right? It's kind of like if you see stuff in, you know, you see a murderer gets caught. You don't just want to hear that they're kind of, the court trial is dragging on. They don't know what to do with him. Right? We want to know, is this guy going to get put in jail? Is he going to, I don't know, is he going to be killed? Is he going to stay blind for the rest of his life? What's God going to do to Saul? What would you do if you were God? Because, because if I was God and someone was killing my followers, right, I, I don't know what I'd do. But, but he'd be in jail He'd be blind for the rest. I'd do something just to stop him. But what does God do here? What does God do in this passage? Because God doesn't actually pour justice out on Saul, which if I was God, I would have. God showed him grace and love. 
Right? God, God actually showed him grace and love, which is um, unbelievable. Right? This guy who's killing his followers, yet God is showing him grace and love. And that's primarily because God is working in this world, not mainly and only through justice, but through grace and love. Right? God is just, but in this world, God is a God of love and grace. Right? And we see that here in Saul, but we see this in us as well. See, the Bible paints this picture for us. Paints the picture that we are actually all sinful. So sin is the bad stuff that I do, where, where God says, don't do this stuff. Right? It's the bad stuff that I do. Also the good stuff I don't do. So even if I don't think I'm, I'm that bad, unless I'm perfect, I'm sinful. And the Bible paints this picture that we all deserve judgment. We all deserve justice for our sin, and that justice is eternal death. Right? That's what we deserve, all of us. So not just murderers, not just people who are jailing Christians, but all of us. I deserve this. But God doesn't primarily act in justice. He is just. And if we don't turn to Jesus, we will face that justice. But God acts in love and mercy and grace. And Jesus came into the world to die on the cross to satisfy God's justice to give us grace. And grace is not just, you know, what you say at dinner. Grace is an undeserved gift, right? And, and so God gives us grace instead of justice. And this is what happens with Saul. Right? This is what happens with Saul. It's unbelievable. God shouldn't show him love, shouldn't show him grace. He should kill him, really. This is a guy that's destroying the church. And yet God shows him love and mercy. And so how does this unfold? Or well, what do we see? Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sounds but did not see anyone. Again, I love this fact. I love the fact that what happened to Saul didn't just happen in his head, right? It's not just a hallucination. This is not a dream that changed his life. This was an event that people actually saw, eyewitnesses saw. What happened next? Verse 8, he's on the ground, gets up from the ground, opens his eyes, can't see anything. And then verse 9, he heads to Damascus. God is acting in grace here. God's acting in love here. God is saving individuals, people we would never expect. Right? You'd never expect someone like Saul to be saved. But God is loving him. God can save him. And God is saving someone like him. God is gracious here. God is gracious in using and saving someone like Saul, but he's also gracious in using someone like Ananias, which is the next character we meet. In verse 10, we see that in Damascus, there's a disciple there named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision and said, Ananias, he said, yes, Lord. And then verse 11, the Lord told him, go down to the house of Judas on Straight Street again, right? You get a location here, you get a person's house here. This is an eyewitness account of something that happened. This is historical. Go down to Judas' house on, on Straight Street uh, and basically there meet this guy called Saul. Now, now we've got to feel the weight of what uh, Ananias is being asked to do here because it's kind of a big deal what Ananias is being asked to do. He's asked to go and talk to the guy that is destroying the, the church, God's people. He's killing people, he's jailing people, and yet God's asking Ananias to just go and talk to him. Right, that's actually kind of a big deal. I don't know what you would do in that moment. I feel like I'd be kind of afraid in that moment, scared. Today's version of what that is. So uh, social media does have this weird kind of thing where you go through these trends, right? So, um, you know, not too long ago we had dabbing, if you know what that is. Um, if you don't, that's okay. I'm not going to do it for you. Uh, before that, you've got, uh, remember like a few years ago, Ice Bucket Challenge, right? That was a long time ago. 
Um, but the most weird one that we have is the one at the moment, and it's the whole clown thing, right? That is actually messed up, right? 100% messed up. And if you're one of those people that do that, right, we need to chat after church because you're a weirdo and that's messed up, right? But, but the clown thing at the moment. So I don't know if you can imagine this, but if someone said to you, um, go down, you know, the road to the corner of kind of Padstow and Warrigal Road, on the corner there, there's a guy there called Steve. In his house, there's a clown going to be sitting in the, clown, in the house. Just go in there. He'll be praying under his clown mask and just go and lay your hands on him and pray. Okay, if someone asks me to do that, I'm not doing it, right? It doesn't matter if God's telling me to do that. I'm just not doing that. The clowns are messed up. Anyway, what Ananias is being asked to do here, it's kind of on that level, like, like Saul's killing Christians, going around like murdering Christians, taking their jackets so they can get a better throw at them. He's smiling when Christians are dying, jailing Christians here, and yet Ananias is being asked to go and talk to him. Right? And so Ananias' response there, it's pretty natural, isn't it? Verse, 50, uh, verse 13, uh, I'll figure it out in a second. Verse 13, Ananias said, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias basically says, I don't want to go, right? I, I don't want to do this. This is kind of weird that you're asking me to do this anyway but God responds to him and basically what God says to him is I know who Saul is right I know who your enemies are better than you do and yet I'm going to be gracious I'm going to love this guy and I'm going to use him verse 15 the Lord said to Ananias go this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and again the Gentiles are just those who aren't Jews and their kings and before the people of Israel, I will show him how much uh, he must suffer for my name. God's saying, basically, I'm going to love this guy and I'm going to use this guy. Now, I know it kind of sounds weird, like vengeful here that he's going to suffer for his name because he's done this stuff. But if we jump forward a little bit to some of the letters that, that Paul, Saul wrote, what we see is that he actually says, I count it pure joy to suffer for Jesus. Right? Saul would rather suffer for Jesus than be living in peace against Jesus. And so God says, I'm going to love this guy. I'm going to use this guy. I'm working in this guy. And so Ananias boldly responds, goes down, prays for Saul. Saul gets the spirit and becomes a Christian. Amazing, right? Saul becomes a Christian. We actually have to feel the weight of this. Saul becomes a Christian. 19 verses ago, at the start of chapter, he's breathing murderous threats, and yet here he is standing as a Christian, standing as someone who believes in Jesus, right? The, the biggest enemy of the church, someone we'd be afraid of. It takes Jesus 19 verses to save him, to love him, and to use him. It's unbelievable what happens here. Right, we have to see the weight of what God is doing here because God is working in individuals to save them. But if we take a step back from this story and remember why Luke's writing again, right, to bring certainty. This story, like I know there's lots of big things in Acts that, that help us know that what we believe about Jesus is true. But this one's one of the biggest, I think. Right, if we think about this, this is a man who hated Christians as far from Christianity. He's not just neutral. He hates Christians. He wants to kill Christians. And yet here he is standing as a Christian. So we've got to think about that, right? Why did he become a Christian? What changes for someone like this? Because it's a big deal that he changes. And of course we see it, right? He met Jesus. 
And so for us, we can have certainty again. Jesus did die on the cross, but he rose. He's alive. We can believe this. We can know that this is true. We can look at Saul's story. We can see the eyewitness account of this, and we can have certainty about this. And so if you've joined us here today, maybe you're new, maybe you're visiting us. If you're not a Christian, we love having you. Right? We, we love having you here today. We want to welcome you. We hope you enjoy the, the time together this morning. But we hope more than that that you kind of wrestle with this whole thing that happened here, this eyewitness account. Look at Saul's life and wrestle with what happened. What changed for Saul? What was the big thing? Wrestle with this. Right? Think about this. But if you are a Christian here this morning, if you join us, you believe in Jesus, we celebrate his death and resurrection. If you are here, then we have to see the weight of this story. God works in individuals. God is saving people, right? He is doing it, not just in Acts, throughout history and today. God is doing something in our world to save people. But God's also working through individuals. So God's saving individuals, but God's actually working through individuals, which is what we see then from verse 20 onwards. So in verse 20, we see Saul at once begins to preach about Jesus being the Son of God. Right? You, you see how amazing that is? The chapter begins with him breathing murderous threats to people speaking about Jesus. And yet here he is in verse 20 speaking about Jesus. And he's saying Jesus is the Son of God. Now, now that is a title, Jesus is the Son of God. But what he's doing there is actually saying that Jesus is the one the Old Testament spoke about. Which is pretty cool because Saul grew up basically memorizing the Old Testament. But now his eyes are open and he says, no, the Old Testament is actually speaking about Jesus. He speaks about Jesus. This is a big change. right? Can you see the weight of what, of what this change is? It's a massive change. Hard to really think of a bigger change you know, that we'd experience today. Hard, hard to think of a bigger change. Someone who would breathe murderous threats and now he's speaking about Jesus. This is a massive change. I don't think we can think of a bigger change. So... This is bigger than if someone, you know, grew up, I don't know, was born in the sugarcane farms up in North Queensland, grew up kicking a footy with Billy Slater, followed Queensland their whole life, and then this year decided that their favourite player was Paul Gallen and they were going to follow New South Wales. Right, what happened with Saul is a bigger deal than that. It's even bigger than if someone who loved Ford, right, you know, grew up in a Ford, played in a Ford, I don't know, their parents owned a Ford, first car was a Ford, and then last week at Bathurst, the Bathurst, I don't know. But last week at the racing thing that happened, decided that they would follow Holden, right? What happened with Saul is a bigger deal than that, right? It's even bigger than if uh, an Apple fanboy or fangirl, so I know pictures, it's never going to happen, but you know those people that love Apple still buy a new phone every year despite the fact it hasn't changed in six years? that are twice as more expensive as the Samsung exploding phone, right, which we all know we'd like. Like, that's a good thing, surely. It's a, it's a weapon against the clowns. But, but it's, it's bigger, right? What happened here is bigger than if an Apple fanboy decided that they would, you know, jump on Samsung. Right, really, it is actually bigger here. What happened to Saul is a big deal. This is a massive change. We have to see how big a change this is. Breathing murderous threats... And yet here he is speaking about Jesus. It's huge. And all the people see this. So have a look. Verse 21. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take, prison, take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Everyone can see that this is a big deal. Yet verse 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful 
and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Everyone can see that this is a big deal. And Saul is growing. Now, when it says that he's growing more and more powerful, Luke's not just telling us that he's found a good gym. What, what he's actually saying here is that as he speaks about Jesus and as he trusts in Jesus, he's growing in his faith. And we can actually expect that as well. As we speak about Jesus in our faith, as we trust Jesus, we, we need to be growing. We do actually need to be growing. And, and Saul is growing in his faith and he's convincing people, he's proving through his speech, through whatever he's saying, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, again, Jesus being the Christ, it's the king. That's what Christ means, the king, the one the Old Testament spoke about, the one they were looking forward to. He's saying Jesus is the one you know, we were looking forward to. Jesus is the Christ. Again, it's a big deal. right? Speaking murderous threats, yet now he's speaking about Jesus. But in this climate where Saul's living, if you speak about Jesus, people are going to try and kill you. And so that's what we see in verse 23, people try and kill Saul. But as we know, back in the day, Saul jumps in a basket and escapes. I would probably wouldn't recommend that today. Right? If you do come up against a clown, don't hide in a basket. But Saul did. Saul hid in a basket and escaped. Now, now this is a near-death experience for Saul. People are trying to kill him, but he escapes. Now, I don't know about what you would do in that moment, feel like when I come across life, near, near life, death, whatever experiences, I'm not going to turn back and go and do the same thing that I was doing before that got me there. But Saul's a bit different to us. And so what he does is he basically turns around, goes to Jerusalem, and what we see is the same stuff happens. So the disciples from verse 26 onwards, they don't know if they can trust Saul, right? They're, they're not sure if this thing's legit, but Barnabas, good old Barney, says, no, no, he's, he's legit, we saw him. And then what we see there, a couple of big things. Saul preaches fearlessly the name of Jesus. And then verse 28, he stays with them, he moved about freely, and then he speaks boldly in the name of the Lord. Saul's been so changed by Jesus. He's not afraid of people. He continues to speak about Jesus. He continues, he speaks fearlessly about Jesus. Now there is something, and we won't talk much about, there's something going on in this passage about fear, right? So we see at the start, Saul's someone we should have been afraid of, right? And then we see as we go throughout it that we, actually God's bigger than Saul. We see here he's speaking fearlessly. We'll see in a moment the church is living in the fear of the Lord. There's something going on here with fear and Saul kind of realized, he, he's speaking fearlessly. No longer is he afraid of men. He speaks boldly about Jesus. But again, they try and kill him. But the brothers help a brother out, send him down to Tarsus, and he lives to tell another, he lives to see another day. Right, right, God is working here. He's working not just to save individuals, the most unlikely people that you would ever imagine, but he's actually working in individuals like Saul, like Ananias, like Barnabas. God's using people to achieve his purpose. He's saving people. He's loving people. And he's using. God is at work. God is at work in individuals like us. He is doing stuff in us and through us. But he's not just working in us individually, he's also working in us as a church. The church is literally God's people, right? That's what the word is. It's the gathering. It's God people, God's people gathering together. And what Luke shows us as we finish this passage is that God doesn't just work individually. He works in his people. In verse 31, we see this. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. God is at work in individuals, but God's also at work in the church here, in his people. 
It enjoys a time of peace. It's encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It's strengthened. But the church grows in numbers. Right? It actually grows. More people come to know Jesus. More people are saved. God is at work. He's at work in individuals and he's at work in the church. And as they live in the fear of the Lord, God is still working and they're growing in numbers. And so as we hear today, as we see this story, as we finish this kind of big scene that Luke tells us, as we see the awe and the amazement of what God is doing in people and in the church, we need to be moved by this. Right? We can't just sit here and know and remember a story we once heard. We actually need to be changed by this, changed by the fact that God is working. Because God is working. God is working in individuals and he's working in us as a church. He is working. This isn't just true in Acts. It's true in history and it's true today. And so we need to be moved by the fact that God's at work. Moved by the fact that God's at work individually. Right? God, God is actually working in my life. And through my life. But he's working in your life, in you, and through you to save people. He is. Now, now I know it's hard, right? And I think sometimes what we do, both individually and as a church, is we let our bad experiences dictate our understanding of what God's doing. Let me explain. So, so I know it's difficult. We know people, right, uh, who have walked away from the faith. Right? It's heartbreaking, it, it sucks, where family and friends say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. I experienced this a couple of weeks ago. Someone said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, and I'm blocking you completely out of my life. I don't want anything to do with you either. That's hard, right? And that, that sucks. And when you look around at the world, our world doesn't, our culture doesn't help us, because when you look around Australia, it seems like Christianity is kind of like this post-Christian, we are a post-Christian society. No denying that. Right, it seems like Christianity was this big thing 50 years ago, but today, right, you tell people a Christian and they look at you like, really? You're still doing that? And so we let our bad experiences dictate. And so we go, yes, I know God works in me and through me to save people, but I just don't think he will. Right? I don't know if you're like me. That's what I've drifted into that thinking. Let my bad experiences, my mates that have fallen away, I go, yes, I know God works. I know he works to save people. I see that in his word, but I just don't think he will. And then it overflows into church, right? I mean, you look at the church in Australia. Seems like numbers are going down. Seems like more and more people aren't going to church. And then, I mean, you you know, we meet together and, and it's good here. We're kind of growing. There's a buzz here. But if we actually stop and think about it, within 10 minutes, there's 100,000 people. We're a splash in eight mile plains. We're a splash in the area around us. And so when we think about God working in our church, actually growing our church, yes, we know our understanding of the Bible tells us that God does it. But if you're anything like me, I just don't think he will. Right? Seven years ago, like I came to Southside and remember Ross was the 1%. We want to reach the 1%. And I just thought, yeah, I know theologically, I know God could do it, but I just don't think he will. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me in that. Let our bad experiences dictate our understanding of God. But when we do that, right, we're not letting God's word dictate our understanding of who God is and what God's doing. We're letting our bad experiences doing it. And when we're doing that, it's actually unfaithful, right, because we're not letting God's word speak to us. We're not letting God's word tell us who God is. And when we see this, what we see is that God is working. He is 
right? This isn't an axe thing. This is all throughout history and it's true today. God is working in our lives and through us as individuals and as a church. And we have to let God's word tell us that, right? And I know the bad experiences suck. I know that knocks us down. Many of us have wept over people that don't want anything to do with Jesus. But that doesn't mean he stopped working. God does work to save people. He saves the most unlikely people like Saul. And he saves likely people too. God is at work in individuals and people like us and the church. And so individually, God is at work in you and through you to save people. God is using you, right? God is working in you and through you. God is helping you speak about Jesus and God will save people, right? He's working in our world through us. He's doing this and God is answering prayers, Right? He, he would have answered the prayer for Saul. I mean, isn't that a cool thing? Like someone would have prayed for Saul before Saul became a Christian. God answered that. God works through prayers. He wants to use us and he's answering our prayers for our non-Christian friends. But he's also answering our prayers for opportunities. Right? He, he is. And so we can see God's word, see that he's at work and we can pray for opportunities and expect God will give us them. Right? And so a story about this. Uh, a couple of months ago, actually... We'll go back a bit before that. A few years ago, I was told to pray for opportunities. I'm not good at it. I'm actually terrible at it. I forget all the time to pray for opportunities. But sometimes I do. Um, a few weeks ago, a few actually it was probably two months ago now, me and Sam are catching up. Sam's one of the youth boys here, one of the boys. And um, we're praying together. And Sam prays for my non-Christian mates that I'd have an opportunity to hang out with my non-Christian mates. Right, we get in the car, go and play Pokemon as you do. Within 10 minutes, no joke, my non-Christian mate who has never texted me, we had never hung out outside of the sport that we hung out, sends me a text and says, hey Ben, I've got four free tickets to the Broncos with the two other non-Christian mates. Do you want to come with us? Right Now I'm not expecting God's always going to you know, give me opportunities like Broncos tickets. I hope he will. But he, he just does that. Now, you might be sitting there going, okay, that's coincidence. So I'll give you another one. Um, was driving home thinking, man, I never pray for opportunity. Beating myself up, right? The crazy thing is God doesn't beat me up about this, right? But I was beating myself up going, I've got to pray for opportunities. I'm like, sorry, God, I don't pray for opportunities. Please give us one with our neighbors. We're terrible at this. We haven't had them over. We're not great at this, right? I'm not standing up. This as someone who has, you know, is nailing this, knowing that God works and living it out. And, you know, but I prayed for opportunity. Prayed, said, God, please give us one. Please forgive me for not asking. Please give me one. Went home. Within five minutes, our neighbors who'd never been to our house, we'd never been to their house, invites us over to help some issue with their fish tank, right? And we get to hang out with them for 10 minutes and meet their family. God is at work individually. He is, right? He's at work in your life and he wants to answer our prayers and he does. And we can know that God's at work. Yeah, I know we had bad experiences. I know we've all had moments where we've had opportunities, missed them, where we've taken opportunities, nothing seems to happen, but God is still at work, right? Those bad experiences don't determine what God's doing in this world. His word tells us he's at work in this world and he's at work in you, but he's also at work in our church. He is at work here at Southside. He, he really is. I mean, this week, uh, this week the plastering went up at the new building. And Ross and I were th this week looking at the walls, just going, man, I said to Ross, actually, I said this, I said, um, who would have thought that we would be here seven years ago? So seven years ago, I started coming to Southside. 
Um, we met in a little building around the corner, dodgy building with asbestos and lots of other problems as well. I started coming to a little night service where there was kind of like 12 to kind of 20 of us, not many of us. The morning there was kind of 40 to 50, right? We were a small church, not much happening. And just thought I would never have thought that by this stage in seven years we'd have our own building and looking to move into it. Never thought we'd be here actually in this building, let alone somewhere else. But God is at work among us. And if we don't let our bad experiences dictate, we actually see that. If we look around, we see that God's at work. See, I would never have thought that in seven years we would have tripled as a church, including kids. Never would have thought that while kids' ministry used to meet in a demountable, right, comfortably in a demountable, now we have over 80 kids struggling to meet in the rooms that we've got. Never would have thought that. Never would have thought youth group, right, which seven years ago we sat around a picnic table with Four kids just talking while the sermon was on. Never would have thought that in in seven years we'd look back and be able to say that in the last two years we've seen seven kids want to put their trust in Jesus who don't go to church. Never would have thought that. Never would have thought we'd go to Fun and Adventure and see 25 kids make a commitment. As a youth serving there, 25 kids, 15 recommitment. Praise God that they want to get back on the horse. But 10 for the first time. Never would have thought that God would do this, but he is doing this. He's at work in this world, but he's at work in our church. He is doing stuff here. And when we say we can reach 1%, this is not a big thing for God. A thousand people is no big thing to God. And as Dave was praying about before, one, two, three percent, we believe God's going to do this because God's word tells us he's at work in this world. He is at work in this world. Yes, we've seen people walk away from church. It's horrible when they do. But that doesn't mean God's not working. We see here God is still working. God is working in us individually. And he's working in us as a church. And so as we see this story, as we hear about Saul, the most unlikely person becoming a Christian, let's remember God is working in your life. He's working among us. And let's be moved by this, where our speech and our actions and our prayers are transformed by the fact that God is doing something in this world. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are not a distant and a far off God, but you are a God that is with us. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came into the world, that he died on the cross and that he rose again. Thank you that your justice was satisfied, that we can know your love and your grace. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. But thank you too that you you didn't just do this and then leave us alone, but that you're still at work in our world. Lord, we pray that our lives would be transformed and changed by the fact that you are at work here in our lives individually, but in our church as well, in in the people of God as we meet together. Thank you that you're at work. We pray you'd help us to remember this, not just today, but for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.